This is Living Philosophy with your host, Dr. Todd May, and for this episode, we'll be exploring the philosophy of gastronomy. Gastronomy is an exciting subject that brings together topics of biological and spiritual sustenance, as well as ethical practice and matters of taste. To eat well is in many senses to live well, whether this means an unforgettable culinary experience, sharing food and hospitality in the spirit of conviviality, or living responsibly in relation to nature and other vegetative and animal species. You might think that living gastronomically well is simply a matter of choosing an appropriate diet, programs, or even a dedicated way of life. Yet underneath the surface lurk some rather provocative and niggling questions about how humans tend to miss quite a bit about gastronomy because, well, we only tend to think about our own stomachs, and in a very limited way at that. What if we were attuned to how the stomachs of other species functioned and expressed certain preferences and relations to ourselves and the natural world? Should that make a difference? There is a lot I am tempted to say here, but let me just leave the listener with this observation. A lot of what is going wrong or sideways in the world tends to involve not only human actors, but human actors whose remit and scope of consideration is insufficiently broad. There are many ways in which our perspective can be changed or curiously challenged, and gastronomy is no exception. In fact, it can be central. Find a way to understand our stomachs, as well as the stomachs of other species, and you just might unlock something essential to living well. Perhaps philosophy can help us gain a clearer understanding of this. Our guest for this episode is Kelly Donati, who is Senior Lecturer at the William Anglis Institute in Australia. She is also the founding chair for SUSTAIN, the Australian Food Network, and co-convener of the Symposium of Australian Gastronomy. Kelly's research focuses on the co-productive collaborations between humans and non-humans in small-scale farming practices. She has published widely in the areas of multi-species gastronomy, community gardens, farmers markets, and the politics of slow food. Kelly, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thank you so much, uh, Todd, for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. So to get things started, what is gastronomy? You've set it up really nicely, Todd. I would answer that question in two ways. One is, you know, what do we mean by gastronomy? And then also a secondary question, which is, you know, whose gastronomy are we talking about? So as you sort of suggested in your in your intro, most people kind of associate gastronomy with fine dining. And and when I say that I, I, I study gastronomy or that's my field of research, they sort of think I'm swanning around eating in nice places and, and, um, and drinking good wine, which, of course, are things that I love to do. But I guess when we're thinking about gastronomy more broadly, what we're talking about is how we, and by we, I mean as a society, as a culture, as individuals, make sense of this question of, of what's good to eat. Or rather, you know, how should we eat? What is the good way to eat? And what is the good way not to eat? And all cultures have, you know, different ways, ideas or ideologies to answering that question. And, and so those ideas don't necessarily translate so well across cultures and across time, but all cultures have protocols for what is eaten, what isn't eaten, and the manners that guide how we eat. And that also then extends to how we feed others, how resources should be shared at the table or more broadly. And then, you know, what are our obligations to others and how do we feed strangers and what does hospitality look like? And, you know, these are questions that we can think of when somebody walks into our home, but also then more globally um, and politically, like what does it mean 
in terms of um, welcoming refugees um, and in migration relations. So these are questions that kind of work at a whole lot of different scales in terms of how do we eat well and live a good life. But I think what makes gastronomy different to, say, dietetics or health or religion or law or the other kind of cultural and epistemological frameworks that that govern the moral and ethical dimensions of eating well is this question of pleasure. Those other kind of fields, I suppose, don't necessarily engage with pleasure in the same way or pleasure is an enormous source of sort of anxiety. So gastronomy is really about how we kind of regulate pleasure, how pleasure is managed, how it's understood. When is it okay to experience it? How much is enough? How much is too much? So there's all those questions around pleasure, but then also there's political questions of whose pleasure matters. And and you're, you're kind of alluding to that with the, the question about you know, the stomach, thinking about other stomachs. And that's the sort of political element of gastronomy is, is, is recognizing the fact that pleasure itself is socially, is socially constructed and that it also means it's unevenly distributed. So not everybody has access to the same pleasures or the same level as pleasure as everybody else. And that includes the human world, but also the more than human world and the the relations that we create and the worlds that we create in the process of feeding ourselves as human beings. That's quite a complex landscape you've you presented to to the listeners and to myself. And I had so many experiences coming out of what you were saying, just sort of triggering moments of when I thought, I guess my my general assumption about gastronomy and our relationship to food, and I think maybe a lot of listeners might have the same assumption, is that the idea of pleasure is just kind of detached from the ethical and the political of you as you described it. And yet when you were just talking through it, it I just all the all the recollections I had, I thought, wait, wait a minute, that is very interestingly tied to specific cultural norms or expectations. And one of the things I remember early on growing up is since I'm uh, Japanese American, uh, growing up in uh, that kind of culture, the idea of a family dinner it is, or how do I put this? It's sort of family style eating. So when we go to a Chinese restaurant, uh, they're just the dishes and they get passed around and shared. And then going to a Chinese restaurant with my non-Chinese friends or non-Asian friends, very quickly, it's, it's not that's not the way you eat. Whereas I thought everyone was going to order dishes and share. It was everybody just ordered their own dish. And that was it. And I thought, oh, that's an odd thing. And I can see how pleasure is tied up with that because for a family that expects a family style dinner, they might part of the joy or the pleasure might be in sharing or passing dishes around. Uh, whereas for someone who's not used to that, having to share their dish might be a source of anxiety about, I don't know what it might be, not being able to finish their dish for themselves or having to share is just an unpleasant experience kind of thing. So it is a very interesting there's a very interesting complexity to the, the world of eating food and our pleasure. And it, I guess, historically, can you give us an idea of when gastronomy first becomes, at least in the West, when it first becomes a topic of academic study? And I know there's a very famous French scholar whose name I've forgotten. I think it's a very long name, so I probably would just do a terrible job trying, trying to remember it. But he comes up with the idea of living well and eating well. Is that correct? So uh, I think you're referring to Jean-Thelme Brulat-Savarin, who was a 19th century French writer. And he's kind of described as, I guess, a, a sort of grandfather of gastronomy. And, and the 19th century post-revolutionary France was kind of a, a burgeoning moment for gastronomy as a as a field, there were there was a whole new body of literature that was emerging, which was 
around, um, you know, food guides and gastronomic criticism and sort of food journalists were were emerging at the time. And and he was one of many writers who were who were kind of contributing to the shaping of this of this field. And it was also a period where, you know, French cuisine was very much France itself as a nation was it, it was in a in a process of nation building. It was you know establishing itself as a republic, developing its political and cultural identity, and food had a, a huge role to play in that. And so one of the things that that the French did um, was really kind of use food as a way of establishing their kind of like cultural superiority, if you like. They imagined was their own cultural superiority, and and there was a whole system of, of sort of codifying French cuisine. And the proliferation of this new, these new genres of gastronomic literature that, you know, that have really shaped the, fruit, the food landscape as we know it today. So I teach in a, in a vocational um, culinary college. And if you go and look at what the students over there are studying, they're learning the French methods and recipes that are, that are based on French techniques. The language that they use is all French. And so the codification of, of, of French cuisine at that time really shaped the ways in which the world of restaurants today, it's t- totally shaped their sort of training landscape, right? So there's a sort of cultural hegemony that, that emerged as a result of that kind of rise of gastronomy in the 19th century. But also it made things like the celebrity chef, you know, that we sort of think of as like a really new phenomenon, a 21st century phenom- phenomenon or maybe 20th century. Actually, that, that emerged also in 19th century France, where you have chefs who are suddenly no longer cooking for the aristocracy. And they're they're developing a new audience, which is a, a public, and they're writing to that audience. So they're not just cooking, but they're addressing a kind of new growing middle class. And so that was a really transformative moment in certainly in French gastronomy, but it it has rippled across the the West in terms of our understandings of what gastronomy actually is and our kind of conceptualizations of that, and also the actual food practices that that happen in restaurants and also the the cultural practices of critique and commentary and audience building and, and all of that sort of stuff. So now that was a very particular moment and an important moment in gastronomy. But there's other moments, I suppose, that are, are not talked about so much in the, in the history of gastronomy. And those are the ways that at the same time that European gastronomy and French gastronomy is really on the rise, you have these processes of colonization and imperial conquest that is building, I suppose, the, you know, if you think about things like chocolate, now, we find it hard to think about Italian cuisine without, say, tomatoes or, you know, the amazing patisserie work that that chefs were doing at that time that still do today was based on a sugar industry that was was founded in slavery. So you have these these relationships between the expansion of European pleasures and then the kind of like destruction of life worlds in those places that were being conquered by European expansionists. So there's this entanglement of the history of Western gastronomy with colonization and dispossession, where you have the unraveling of life worlds that made other gastronomic traditions possible. And so this comes back to the very question of whose pleasure matters. And one of the sort of foundational ideas of colonization is that the people who were being colonized were somehow less than human and that their, you know, their urges and their pleasures are somehow more animalistic or more base. And that was the kind of view that that Europeans very much had about indigenous people and their their life worlds and their their food ways. And so I think there is also a tendency for European um, gastronomy to kind of set itself as the standard against which all other things are measured. And in the process to really kind of marginalize and erase 
all those other gastronomic traditions that existed and that continue to exist today, but that don't really fall within, you know, that don't kind of adhere to the standards of, of what European culture and Western culture defines as gastronomy. That's very interesting. So what's on the surface hides something historically and politically questionable underneath and that needs some some critical analysis. Your your comments about taste and and whose pleasure matters is a great segue to my next question, which had to do with the the problem or the role of taste. And I think most everyone has been in a situation where they're a bit humbled or embarrassed because they've been told or been criticized for some kind of poor taste they have in a food or a wine that they've chosen or they've selected in the wrong uh, relationship to you know a pairing that might be happening happening in a restaurant or or food tasting whatever it might be, and the uh, British philosopher empiricist John Stuart Mill is also utilitarian is very famous for advocating that uh, in order to maximize pleasure within a society one of the best ways to do it is that we have this panel of experts to tell us what the higher pleasures are versus the lower pleasures and so there you very much get within. Western, the history of philosophy, this kind of hierarchy of there are these pleasures. And in all of Mill's writings, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't really question about uh, the, the status of or or what lurks behind the judgment about what counts as higher pleasures or not. He thinks empirically this is just the case that uh, what they're talking about um, in terms of taste within British aristocratic society count as higher pleasure. And so when my was teaching, when I was teaching ethics, this was always a very hotly contested debate. And the, the problem with Mill is he's not he's not that pernicious. And he is he is very progressive in many ways, but this kind of elitist view is is problematic when discussing it with students. So what what do you as a philosopher and a scholar of gastronomy, what is the way to go about and if this is not too strong a word to correct that kind of history is it to try and change the way in which we appreciate food is it to bring attention to students in the public about this history of gastronomy is it a combination of things yeah i mean it is a combination of things certainly i teach gastronomy you know, to undergraduate and postgraduate students so i i do try to kind of draw attention to these more political dimensions of of gastronomy and some of the sort of assumptions that that sit behind them, and I think that for a lot of them, that's really eye opening um, and and quite a, a powerful thing to, to to grapple with. But I guess I also think it's really important to be kind of acknowledging different ontologies of gastronomy. And I I you know I hate to use that word because I know that your audience is meant to be you know it's, it's a public audience who probably doesn't don't engage very well with ideas of ontology and that sort of thing. But this idea of like what are we actually talking about when we talk about what gastronomy is and and the question of whose pleasure matters is is actually one that's very certainly in Australia one that's sort of very relevant um because here in Australia and maybe there's there's this is something that is um also going on in, in the North American context but we have one of the the world's longest and oldest living cultures here many different indigenous cultures um around the country and there's a lot of enthusiasm in this, in Australia, for the the consumption of native foods, right, indigenous foods, as a form of kind of reconciliation, say, a way of kind of like making this whole terrible history of colonization and dispossession and genocide less icky, and and to kind of I think gloss over it in many ways because these are these are really difficult histories to grapple with, and so there is a, a sort of for me I think it's important to be thinking about these questions in a public sort of way because I think. We have to remember 
that, you know, Indigenous gastronomies are not just about ingredients, right? They're about the ways in which life worlds are made sense of and how you interact with them and how you sit in relation to other creatures. And that doesn't really come up in these conversations about native food. It's just kind of everything is sort of reduced down to the ingredient. It's the equivalent of saying French gastronomy is butter, <laughs> you know, and that's it, right? It's French people eat butter and French gastronomy is butter, and that's it, right? And, you know, you kind of overlook all of the sort of cultural relations and practices that sit within French gastronomy. And that's basically how we kind of look at things like indigenous gastronomies as we've reduced them down to a substance, to an ingredient. If we actually start to grapple with the set of relations that make up, say, what might be considered an indigenous gastronomy, then you have to, you have to rethink Western forms of engagement with food and other life forms in very different ways. So for instance, I'm thinking about a, um, an Indigenous elder who was speaking at a, a food event a few years ago, and he talked about the, the way in which when you want to take a, plant, a, a fruit from a plant, you don't just walk up and take it. You have to ask the plant whether it's ready to give up its fruit, and you have to shake it at three times. And then if the fruit falls to the ground, then yes, it's okay. You can, you can have that. And so that is a really different way of thinking about the world, right? And that is a gastronomic protocol to say, okay, yes, this fruit is good to eat, but you can't just walk up and take it. It's not just yours to have. If we acknowledge then that there are different ways of thinking about gastronomy and, and doing gastronomy, then we have to really question all of the foundations of you know, the industrial food system, which is based on humans at the center, and we can take Everything is built for us. Everything is organized around our needs and our pleasures. So you mentioned the substantive view of viewing food, and this is something that arises in one of your more recent articles, which we'll get to this ethnographic experience in a moment, because I think the audience will find it very interesting. Uh, Kelly was at a, a goat farm, artisan goat cheese farm and working with goats. We'll get to that in a moment, but I, I do want to follow up on this idea of the substance approach to food, just so uh, we can explore it in a little bit more depth. So if I understand correctly, viewing food as substance is kind of reducing it to a single type of experience or pleasure. And we just start to view everything through that kind of lens about whether or not food is good for you. So perhaps I can even, I'm a health nut and just looking at food solely in terms of nutritional content or calories. And the the wider view or a wider view would be viewing food in relation to how other for lack of a better term, value systems or normative systems figure into the way in which one exists with food, how they use it, how they go about actually eating it or picking it, whatever it might be. And there is a point at which the kind of indigenous practices that you're referring to, or it can even be ancient practices, I suppose, things that are very distant from us, they're going to be gobbled up, as it were, by capitalism or the capitalist way of thinking. And so there's kind of a double-edged sword to this, if I can use that metaphor. One is that it's great that different programs on television or on YouTube bring us an experience of an quote-unquote exotic food or an indigenous food that we wouldn't normally experience. But then it seems like the problem with that is it's going to always portray it in terms of a, a substance-based approach about according to our own pleasures. Is that sound like something um, that would would occur according to the the critical view you have. I think the the thing about Western appetites and Western pleasures is there is a kind of individualism within that, right? That you've kind of alluded to when talking about the family meal, right? Like this idea of is the meal a shared experience where we all 
decide together at the table what what's going to be eaten and 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 it's it's agreed that it's it's assumed that it's actually to be shared versus that kind of the western idea of this is my plate right and and I'm eating this and that kind of very bounded way of thinking about the world is is really how western gastronomy kind of engages and interacts with other normative systems and and things like say native foods where it's like oh this is a really great thing to have and it's more sustainable and and look it supports um, indigenous cultures maybe it doesn't always let's commodify it you know let's make it big let's make it so that everybody is eating this let's bring it into every restaurant that's kind of the the argument that's being made and it's like well how does it change the relations around that particular food if you if you bring it into a kind of commodity system and so one of the sort of interesting tensions in the discourses around the consumption of native foods in Australia is on the one hand they're highly valued because they're seen as ultra natural in a way you know they're ancient they're they've been untouched by domestication and capitalism in a sense but then on the other hand if we're going to enjoy them as as kind of western consumers then we have to bring them into a commodity system of production and consumption and then effectively all of those spiritual cultural relationships protocols norms are again kind of erased and and fundamentally undermined by by the centering i guess of western pleasures and appetites i think that's something that's fundamentally needs to kind of shift about our gastronomic culture is this idea that a western pleasure is always at the center it's always the most important thing and we have to be thinking about what other pleasures are out there who doesn't have access to pleasure how do we need to construct worlds differently so that pleasure is more justly distributed living philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation inspiration and intelligence are you unhappy with your academic career do you need help transitioning to the next chapter Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring. After a long academic career, let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are; it's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call eight four three two two five three two two four to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book. The Infinite Staircase: What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality. High Tech's best-known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, 
The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.theletterh.com the letter N, the letter R, the letter L, dot org. That's www.hinrl.org. I was thinking how it would also involve a, a, a critical analysis of how we relate to pleasure, I suppose, in a more personal way, but it's also not just personal because it's spread across a culture. And what I had in mind was this idea that with capitalism, or our capitalistic way of, of, of living, pleasure is something that we look for to be ubiquitous. So we're always seeking, and I know there's a distinction between pleasure and happiness, but I'll just use them as, as synonymous in, in this instance. So my philosophical colleagues will have to forgive me for this, but it seems like we're always seeking happiness and that's experience of happiness. And so what's naturally going to happen within a capitalist framework that works on exploiting these kinds of pleasures for profit is to make them as ubiquitous as possible. So a very trivial example of this are, are is, is hot cross buns during Easter, which used to only be available during Easter time. But now you can probably find them at any time because of the, I don't know, the nostalgic association of that particular food with that particular time. And so why not have them all the time? And once you have that ubiquity, then it kind of becomes meaningless. And so I guess the worry is also with the relationship to foods that are very much extrinsic to our culture and very much require a different way of approaching how they're made, why they're made and so forth all that kind of gets collapsed or or erased within the kind of industrial capitalist industrial system we work in and so is part of the answer then and this is kind of an awkward segue for me i'm trying to maybe um push this a little bit too quickly but is part of the answer to the the kind of capital system your own experience or not your own experience but what you experienced in terms of the artisan uh, goat cheese farm. I believe it was, um, if the name comes to me, Sutton Grange, cheese making farm and doing your ethnographic field work. And you got to, your article's great on this. It's it's available online. I'll provide a link in the podcast blur, but you give a very detailed kind of journal account of what it was like to first arrive there, uh, how you were trained by uh, kind of as an apprentice with the goats and how you got to understand what the goats might be thinking in relationship to your presence as well as the kinds of foods that they were being given. Can you say more about that as a possible, I don't know if antidote's too strong a word, but certainly something that can help balance our relationship to food within this kind of industrial framework that we exist in? So firstly, just to clarify, I wasn't, um, I wasn't so much an apprentice. I was just there as a kind of an ethnographer doing some interviewing and spending um, some time there. And I was 
I was uh, I was standing in the middle of the the dairy because I was waiting for um, one of the farmers to she was she was off uh, feeding feeding the the goats or she had something to do so I was she said I'll go and grab a brush you know and and go into the dairy they they like being brushed and and so I did and I went into the the, the dairy and there was this and she had warned me about this she said look they're very cheeky right and anyone who spent time with goats knows that they're quite funny cheeky smart animals and they had this system for putting a blue mark on certain certain goats that were n- like new mothers because they had to be kind of cared for in a slightly different way so one of them's got this blue mark and i'm i'm in the middle of the goats and I'm, and by that i mean i'm completely surrounded you know they're everywhere they're all around me they've 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 clustered around me and i've got this brush in my hand and and they're all kind of vying for my attention so i start brushing one of them and and then i'm trying to be kind of equitable in my distribution of of brushing um, but this other goat keeps pushing in, and I know because she's got this blue mark on her back, so I can recognize her. It was a moment where I, I kind of, I was being asked by these goats to to acknowledge them as pleasure-seeking creatures, right? They've got pleasures, they love being brushed, it feels good, and they know when they've got you know, there's a human standing there in the middle of the dairy with a brush in their hand that that's their that's the the the, the ethical response, right? Is to brush them because that is what the relation is between goats and humans on that particular farm. The farmers themselves are very sort of attentive to the pleasures of the goats. And so whilst the article was engaging with two cheesemakers who have goats, really what I ended up delving into was all the different things that you have to think about if you're going to feed goats well, which had, yes, they have a lot to do with cheese, with the end product, but they also had a lot to do with the social and gastronomic worlds of goats themselves and their microbial, the microbial communities in their rumen and the kind of gastronomic knowledge that they passed down between mother and, and kid. What became clear to me in, in talking to the farmers and their, their system for feeding goats was that goats have their own gastronomy and that if you want to be making cheese, good cheese, but also cheese that is ethical, that is really about taking care of goats well, then there's a whole lot of other things that you have to think about that are not necessarily convenient for farmers. And one of them is the the process of rumination, giving goats the time to kind of sit down and literally chew the cud. You know, we use that expression to kind of imagine sitting around kind of chatting about things, right, or thinking about things. And that's that's exactly what goats do after they eat. They have to sit down and just kind of chew their cud. And that's a that cud chewing is it's social because it's a way for the the goats to bond with one another as a herd. And it's relaxing for them. It puts them, you know, makes them feel a bit sort of happy and a bit chill. But it's also um the way in which they interact with the the microbial communities in their room and in their stomach where they're kind of regurgitating the food and chewing it some more and then bringing it down again. And that's what allows them to digest. And then whether or not that process works well or not has to do with all the different ways in which the goats eat on the farm. And and so that means attending to the goats' pleasures, but also not totally letting them have eat whatever they want in the same way that we might like to eat chocolate cake every day, but maybe that's not the best thing for us, right? So so goats kind of like binging on really sweet green grass is actually really unhealthy for them and makes them sick and can can um, make them quite ill and even kill them in certain circumstances where certain bacteria become dominant in their um, in their gut. But but all of this to say that being a cheesemaker then for these particular cheesemakers means thinking about all of these different relationships. It's not just about the cheese at the end. It's about 
what does it mean to feed a goat well and to acknowledge their pleasures as well? And that's what I'm kind of always interested in, I suppose, in any farm that I go to is how do these, you know, how do these farmers kind of, in what way do they acknowledge the pleasure of other creatures and how do they, how do they respond to that, to that acknowledgement? Because it creates an obligation. And is this lifestyle, this farming style, and this approach to gastronomy, is it just a mutually exclusive from an industrial, the industrial system we have, or is there a way in which you can imagine our industrial system becoming more virtuous in this respect? Sorry, I like the term virtuous a lot. I just mean it in a general kind of virtue ethical way, where, uh, for example, you could have a larger farm corporation, but they are able to operate in such a way that they can give this kind of attention to the animals they rear or whatever it might be. Or is that on your view, just something that can happen because once you get something that's so large, it just automatically tends to be geared towards profit and the bottom line, as opposed to these kinds of moral, ethical, aesthetic obligations. It's something that I've thought about a lot is, you know, how how does scale work in this in this context with these ideas and what difference does it make? And it makes all the difference. But I did go and, and speak to some larger, a much, much larger farm out in Western Australia, which is sort of the wheat belt, to see, you know, the, these farmers that I was speaking to are quite huge compared to some of the, the farmers that I, was, that I was just describing to you, who are in many cases quite tiny. And so they're really farming. They were um, doing cropping and they also had sheep that they were selling for meat and also wool. So they had a kind of a couple of different farming businesses but they were basically their grain is going into global commodity chains right so they're they're not kind of you know niche uh, producers they're actually within a kind of very big commodity chain system which they would rather not be but it's really difficult if you're a wheat farmer to separate yourself out from that commodity chain right because of the way in which it's structured and and how kind of rigid it is but i i wanted to know you know how does this how does this work at scale can can these ideas actually function and I, one of the things that i that the farmers in that case spoke to me about was really interesting they talked about going into the paddock and asking the paddock questions so their farm is quite uh, spread out so they've got like kind of multiple properties and each paddock they kind of regard as its own system, right? Its own ecological system. And they kind of are, I guess they, they're they what you would call regenerative farmers, right? They're very much focused on soil health and the relationship between the microbial communities in the soil and then the gut of the animals and even the microbiome of the atmosphere. They're really thinking about all of the dynamics that are happening between different microbial systems in agriculture. What was really fascinating for me was was how they both spoke about going into the paddock and basically asking the paddock questions, and they each did this in different ways. What they said to me was what they were trying to do there was to decenter their own priorities, which were you know economic priorities, and to center what is good for the paddock, what does the paddock need, and what does the paddock have to say about what needs to happen next. And so their decisions were often based on these very kind of intuitive gut feelings about about the paddock and that maybe actually this paddock is not ready for being having seed seed sown into it yet. Um maybe it's best to wait, you know. And so so really what the difference there is is not just the actual farming practices like do they apply, you know, worm wee on the soil or whatever kind of like are the the mechanics of farming, but actually it was a whole kind of like different epistemology, like a different knowledge system for farming. 
And that is actually the difference. It's the thing that slows them down and makes them stop and ask a whole different set of questions. Because if you think about the farming systems in a place like the wheat belt, the knowledge systems that are circulating are mostly corporate knowledge systems, right? Like the government has taken out most of the extension officers that used to go around and talk to farmers about how they overcome like certain problems or how they do things better or whatever. And now those people are largely paid for by that service is mostly provided by agrochemical companies. So the whole knowledge system of that of that farming network is corporatized. So there's something that's quite radical then about operating in this system in a in a commodity chain sense, but doing so in a way that acknowledges that maybe the the paddock itself is kind of knowing in the same way that, you know, these goat farmers acknowledge that the goats themselves have their own kind of like wisdom or knowledge. So I think that that in terms of, yes, they can do that at scale. It's not easy, but it's possible. Other things, no. I think, for instance, if you think about systems of slaughter, there's no way, I think, to do systems of slaughter at scale in a way that's, you know, in any way ethical or humane for humans or or the animals themselves. It's just not possible. So it depends, I guess, is my answer. And in some circumstances, possibly, you can do the, these things at scale. And in others, no, actually, the scale really has to be paired right back. I love the idea of trying to understand the paddock. And perhaps there's a role for philosophers within this kind of industry, especially if they're of the, the philosophy of mind bent, where they can talk about the difficulty of understanding others, where others is broadened out, of course, to include non-human animals. And uh, we had a guest on the podcast, Constantine Sandis, who is in the area of philosophy of action, but he's also looking at the difficulty of understanding others. And he talks about how he very much can understand his cat. It does take a while for him to understand more precisely what the cat wants, because they're obviously not speaking a common language to each other. But it's through this kind of dwelling with a long-term intimate dwelling with another that you can pick up on these kinds of symbiotic signals and relations. So maybe philosophers can be a little bit more pliable outside the world of academia. So we've talked a lot about the farming side of things, and perhaps our listeners are thinking about uh, whether it's a small farm or a large-scale farm, just somewhere outside of the urban landscape. Can you say more about how that kind of relationship between agriculture and the urban landscape might have some, um, your your own research might have some implications about the way in which we live in the city or dwell in the city space or the way in which we conceive of of the urban space. I am interested in this idea of agriculture as a, a potentially a gastronomic practice that, that can feed non-humans well. So not just thinking about agriculture as feeding humans well, but also non-humans well. And I call that, you know, multi-species gastronomy. But I I also think that these ideas are important in the context of of cities, right? Because most most of the world lives in urbanized environments. Over half of the world's population lives in urbanized environments. So cities really, as much as agricultural systems matter, you know, in terms of planetary health and human health and 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 all of that. So so do the 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 forms that our cities take. And so one of the things that I'm been very interested in, and I I'm, I work on as part of my my role in Sustain uh, the Australian Food Network is we're very much advocates of urban agriculture. And I think that, you know, obviously being able to grow your own food is an enormous privilege, right, and something that not everybody has access to. And, you know, I believe that more people should have access to that and we should think about that in terms of how we design our cities. But I think that you can think about these questions, these gastronomic questions, in terms of, well, what would it mean if we designed cities gastronomically? 
what kind of different decisions would we have to make about how they're planned, about the what they look like, what they feel like, how people eat in them, and how could we make that equitable right now? You know, and I, you know, I live in Melbourne, which is a very food-oriented city. It, it, it prides itself on having great food, great restaurants, great farmers markets, great produce, and all of those things are, of course, true. But there's so much inequity in the city, and so there's a lot of people that don't have access to food or are struggling with poverty. All of that. So I think in terms of thinking about gastronomy and cities, thinking gastronomically about cities would shift, I think, are the ways in which we design cities. And so one of the things that, for instance, became clear to me during the pandemic, because we did some interviews, uh, some surveying of people and their gardening practices, and people talked about, you know, how they were obviously spending a lot more time in the garden. They had a lot more time to care about themselves. People spoke about this temporal dimension of time and health a lot. It came up again and again. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Like we tend to think about health in terms of making good choices, making healthy choices. This is the rhetoric of public health and policymakers. But actually, so much of being healthy and enjoying life is about time, about having time. And the temporality of capitalism is such that it's actually very difficult to kind of carve out that space for yourself. And so some of us were able to do that during the pandemic. I was able to work from home and and garden and spend time in my garden. And that was incredibly pleasurable and, and nourishing. And other people were forced into what were defined as essential services, ironically, many of them food-based. But what it made me think about was the way in which pleasure and time are so actually critical to human health and well-being and the well-being of the ecosystems in which people were living. And so people were describing all manner of taking care of other creatures in their gardens, you know, lizards and frogs and birds, and really starting to see themselves as part of an ecosystem. So one of my things is I think public health and urban planners don't really think about the importance of pleasure as a health issue. You know, on the one hand, you have kind of like certain industries like tourism, like the processed food industry, like marketing, they are very, very attentive to questions of pleasure, right? They know that pleasure is how you get people to buy things, how you get people to buy, you know, in some cases, quite stupid products, right? But if you can, if you can somehow convince people that they're going to be fun or enjoyable or pleasurable, then you can sell them. But in in public health and in in food policy, which is an area that uh, I do a lot of work in now, nobody talks about pleasure. So you have this whole kind of fast food industry and industrial food system that's very, very much understands pleasure, spends a lot of time thinking about those trigger points, right? And you have a you have a food policy realm and a public health realm that kind of denies pleasure or or sees it as something that's that's trivial or frivolous. And so I'm really interested in the question of, you know, and this is something that I haven't really gone into as a deep dive, but what if we were designing our cities? for pleasure so that there were social environments in which everybody felt that they had access to those spaces. Farmers markets are fantastic, but not everybody feels comfortable in a farmers market, right? So how can we make sure that the neighborhoods that we design have spaces in which everybody feels included and an agent within that space to to enjoy food, to connect with others, to have a, a sort of conviviality? How can we make food more visible? How can we create spaces where people have access to the experience of of growing their own food, um, which I think is a, an incredibly powerful experience, not just in terms of taking care of of cities as urban as ecosystems, but taking care of the self, taking care of community. It builds relations. Growing food builds relations when it's done in a way that is sort of 
responsible, respectful, and thoughtful. And I guess one of the things about the industrial food system is that it actually tries to strip out relations, right? Because relationships are, they complicate things and they make things less efficient. If you're having to think about how everything is connected to everything else, it's really hard to design a system for killing things as efficiently as possible and getting them into the supermarkets. But actually, the process of growing food is about building relationships, and those relationships work at multiple scales. And, and if that was the way in which we thought about the design of cities, then, then A, cities would look completely differently. We would all be eating differently. And I think, and I would like to, well, I'd like to think that pleasure would be more justly distributed. Cities are not just about humans. We share cities with all sorts of other creatures. I don't know, well, you probably wouldn't know, but in, you know, in Melbourne, there's been these two peregrine falcons that have been perched on a particular building in the, in the downtown area. And over lockdown, everybody's been kind of obsessively watching their, um, their life cycle, right? As they, they lay eggs and then the little fledglings are born and, and, and whatnot. So actually, when you watch something like that, you realize cities are not just places for humans. There's all sorts of life here that are making themselves at home that need to eat. How can we make the city a more abundant place? And so just as we can apply those questions to agriculture, I think we can also apply them to cities. And I think cities would be a very different place if we were to sort of be thinking along those lines. That's an exciting prospect. I was thinking of the title of the book, The Gastronomic City, and people might be thinking, this is going to be a food guide to all the... No, it's not. And I was wondering if there's an architect out there, perhaps even a PhD student doing architecture, if uh, they would be interested or have thought about what a, a city would look like when you emphasize something like astronomy, as we've been talking about today, what kind of what kind of city layout would happen, what kind of walking spaces and so forth. I'm just thinking a lot of things at once. One is in America, most of the cities are dominated by the car. And once you get that, everything just basically is held hostage to the way in which cars work their noise, um, the routes and everything like that, working on a grid, although that might be practical for walking around, whatever it might be. A contrasting example would be how in Britain, and I'm not sure if this is the case in Australia, but certainly it's kind of a British uh, cultural, I guess, asset or virtue that they, they pride, even though they don't have a lot of land on their island, they do pride, make it a point to have allotments for people to uh, do their own kind of gardening. So you'll have a center field uh, somewhere in a near the town center or whatever it might be where people can walk to and, and grow their own vegetables. So there's a lot that can happen from that. And I was also thinking of just a, a different kind of way of understanding what it means to cook. So on the other end, we're we've been talking a lot about eating, but not about our personal relationship to cooking. I think most people don't have a very positive relationship to cooking their probably working a lot and coming home and they just want to get the food, the cooking done over with as soon as possible. And I'm I've been sort of blessed to have on my 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 in-laws, my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. So my my wife's brother and his wife were both trained as professional chefs. And they left that line of work because they they were having a family that it was very difficult for them to do, do the late hours. So they're doing something more artistic or different artistic career, as it were, right now. But whenever we go over there to eat, their kitchen is a very interesting space because although they might be making a lot of food for a lot of people. They have a completely diff different rhythm. It's not chaotic. It's not anxious. It's very, it's actually, even though they might be making a lot of food, it's kind of very relaxing to watch them work because it looks like they're enjoying it. I haven't asked them, but I'm assuming they enjoy it. And you can, they're just doing things so precisely and with care. And it does kind of open up a different relationship, a temporal relationship to cooking, which 
from my personal experience, I don't have because I, I feel like I'm rushed and doing all these things. So I was just thinking uh, from that perspective, uh, uh, the gastronomic city, having these different interfaces to understand, not only to enjoy food from the side of the consumer or uh, the, the person who eats, but also on the side of creation and understanding the kinds of uh, careful steps that go into that, the the right attitude and, and so forth. So just just some thoughts on that. I do have something to say about that because I think kitchens are so so central, right? I mean, cooking is is so central to um, to the way in which we interact with food. And you know, it's really interesting because on the one hand, when you you know think about the real estate industry, you know, you always see these like or those those um, renovation shows, right? You you see these incredibly fancy kitchens that are huge and 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 they have all this equipment and stuff in them. But actually, the reality is when you look at, for instance, in Melbourne, you you walk around the downtown area and you have all these very, very tiny apartments, many of them built for international students. And the kitchens are tiny, right? Um, really, really hard to cook in. And that's considered to be just totally fine. OK, yeah, people just eat basically mi- mi- microwave food because that's almost all you can do in a space like that or eat takeaway food. And those are kind of ex- seen as like acceptable options. Right. And the, and the kitchen is kind of just a seen as some kind of luxury. Um, but there's, you know, there's some countries, I know a friend of mine who was who was doing her sabbatical in Sweden spoke about how she was staying in this apartment building where they had their own kitchens, but they also had a communal kitchen and people could go downstairs and actually cook together, right? And eat together. And that was part of the the, the broader kind of Swedish culture, but it was also the culture of that apartment building. And it brought people together in different ways. It allowed people to kind of exchange stories and knowledge and cooking tips and, oh, you do it like that and I do it like this. And, oh, wow, you know, all those conversations that happen around food, because the kitchen is understood to be central to the way that people connect to food. And so you bring that into something like the design of apartment buildings And you can really transform not only the way that people relate to the food itself, but also the way that they relate to each other by acknowledging the the centrality of the of the kitchen. And so I think it's something that really is worth thinking more deeply about in terms of urban design and building standards and all of that is, you know, where does the kitchen fit in all of this? And I think everyone's had that experience where they're at a party and everyone naturally gravitates towards the kitchen, even though there's a, a living room space where people can be sitting, but it's for some reason. The, the kitchen is conducive to both pleasures of food and imbibing drinks as well as conversation. So that is quite an interesting thing to explore. We have reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests the two closing questions. And the first question for you, Kelly, is, is there any one philosophy or philosopher that has been central to the way you have lived your life and continue to do so? I can't pretend to say that I'm kind of so disciplined in my <laughs> in my way of living that that there's one philosophy or one philosopher that is central to how I live my life. But certainly if I had to pick a philosopher whose thinking really engages me and provokes me and has been deeply meaningful for me, it's probably the late Deborah Bird Rose. Um, and she was a an eco philosopher who very much shaped the environmental humanities, which is sort of my field. And she's also a beautiful writer and storyteller. And so her work isn't really about food, but she's Reading her has really helped me to see the world as a web of relations in which everybody is food for for everybody else. And so for her, for me, every time I pick up her work, my understanding of the world shifts in some way. So I would say, yeah, Deborah Bird Rose has been an important philosopher for me. And do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? I'm going to say go forth and compost. We haven't talked about composting, but we did talk about cooking. And I think that composting is a 
something that I realized over lockdown because I did a lot of composting and became quite obsessed with it is that it's it's like cooking, right? And you're thinking about the mix of ingredients and the temperature and stirring things and doing all of that in the right way. And really what you're doing in, in the process of composting is you're feeding others, right? You're feeding the soil microbes, you're feeding the plants. And so I think that um, one way to really engage people in this in this more kind of relational thinking about what it means to eat and live well in this world is to compost, you know, because that's what you, you it, it, it develops a reflective practice in those very questions through the, the act of nourishing soil. I mean, you talked about the web of relations, but also the circle uh, connecting with others, because for most of us, compost is just waste. And to see that, I mean, I kind of knew it conceptually, it's nourishing the soil, but until you just said it, that connection wasn't very strong or vivid, but then it's sort of, Right. So getting the temperature right. And I recall from very early on uh, being at a school where they were composting and the person who was in charge of it for that quarter said, can we just hold off on putting orange peels into the compost? Because I've noticed they're altering the way in which things are breaking down. I thought, wow, that was pretty astute. So I don't know what happened after I left, but certainly for the time being, they didn't compost their or they if they composted their orange peels, they did it separately as opposed to with all the other refuse that they were putting back into the earth. So it's a very interesting reflective practices you put it so so thank you for that well thank you todd it's been really fun talking to you thank you kelly and i'm especially looking forward to see more about your work on the gastronomic city or the the urban relation to gastronomy and i hope uh, there is an architecture student or even a professor or practicing architect who might be happening upon this podcast and sit down and think what would the cityscape look like if it were designed along gastronomic values and concerns there is actually Susan Parham is is fantastic on this point. She um, she's written a book called Food and Urbanism, but it's very much a kind of gastronomic lens on the city. And and I think her work is, you know, it's, it's fantastic work, but it's just it's overlooked. I think it's overlooked. I'll put a link in the, the podcast blurb for readers to follow up on that. That sounds extremely intriguing. So thank you. for okay, that. Okay. And thank you for your time. Well, Kelly. Thank you so much, Todd. Looking forward to hearing it. If you would like to know more about Kelly's research and publications, please visit the podcast blurb for social media links. You can always find information on Kelly at the William Anglis Institute website. If you found this discussion insightful and informative, please share the podcast link. We could use more philosophical discussion in our lives. On that note, I'd like to say that barring any unforeseen twists or turns in my life, this episode looks to be the final one for the entire series. Things have been a bit busy in 2022, and I've had to give more of my attention to my research and consultation work. These podcasts have been a labor of love with sponsors helping to pay for production costs. So my great thanks to the Living Philosophy sponsors, Philosophy to You, Transitioning Your Life, and The Infinite Staircase. I'd also like to thank Angela Silva from Detour Studios, who has been providing the wonderful thumbnail artwork for the Public Philosophy episodes. It has been a joy learning from my guests and expanding the horizons of our conceptual and imaginative landscape. I hope you have found the journey as enriching as I. This is Dr. Todd May signing off. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy. And remember, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.